Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host Nathan Jolly and my guest today is Ashley Naylor from Even, from Paul Kelly's band, from The Church, from Vicar and Linda's band, from The Stems and architect of a new album called Soundtracks Volume 2. Enjoy. Okay, well let's start with Soundtracks Volume 2. Now when you released Volume 1, it was called Volume 1, so you clearly had a series in mind. Yeah. <laughs> is this what you're going to do with your solo stuff from now on? Is it going to be instrumental stuff or is this just a little series? It's just a have... series. It'll run it'll run concurrently or parallel, whatever the word is, with other material, um, more sort of song-based material. Yeah. But I figured while I've got a whole bunch of instrumentals in the pipeline, it'd be good to give them a home. And what makes them instrumentals in your mind? Like, why why haven't you put lyrics to them or melodies or? Uh, some of them just don't. It's kind of like putting a square peg in a round hole. Sometimes, like right. sometimes these pieces of music, they sound they sound finished to me. Like I, and some of them are just jams. And then jams, it's sort of it's hard to kind of jam a trying to shoehorn lyrics into a jam. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially your even stuff seems so kind of well crafted like they're they're pop songs and they're kind of yeah so now i understand that um and you've also got the ronson hang up record coming out at the same time so you're quite busy at the moment yeah and you just came back from america with the church so how's that all going yeah oh the church tour is amazing um the ronson record's been in the can for quite some time all right since 2021 the few more songs were added so it kind of got finished off in this flurry of activity over the last 18 months and Steve pretty much is the captain of that ship and and, uh, we're all happy sailors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, um, yeah, speaking of Steve's, you're also part of the church. How did you get involved in that band? That's quite an amazing lineup to join and such a history. It's incredible, really, when you think about it. Um, It was kind of um, serendipity. Uh, Our band even did a show with Ian Hogue's band, Predators in the middle of 2019 up in Brisbane. And that afternoon, our band even recorded a song called Mark the Days. And we, we put that out as a single. We recorded that th- that afternoon. And then we played our show that night. And Ian and I got chatting after our set. He said to me, You should join the church. And I said, Oh, yeah, that'd be unreal. Kind of thinking it was a throwaway remark. And he said, No, yeah, like seriously, like, you know, things were changing within the church. And um, he texted Steve during our set and, and said something along the lines of, this is the church's new guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I spoke to Steve that week. And Steve and I had done some stuff with Rockwiz in the past, which was a lot of fun. Um, Steve, you know, amazing singer, but also great on the on the panel when he when he did guests with Rockwiz. He's hilarious. He is. Um, yeah, so Steve and I spoke during the week after that show we did with the Predators in Brisbane and we just got chatting and it just seemed like, you know, it just seemed like a good fit because I kind of grew up with the church and I kind of understand understand where they're coming from. You know, they're, they're a very appealing band, but they, they, they're not a, a mainstream band as such, but they do have a really, I should say we have, <laughs> a really strong following in the States and and um, I haven't been to Europe with the band yet, but I've done three American tours in the last 18 months with the band, so... It's been, it's been incredible, really. Did you play on the Hypnogog album? Yes, I did. Yeah, I played. Uh, yes, played on that record. And there's three guitarists in the band, so it's it's a little bit like Radiohead or something. You kind of um, 
it becomes an ensemble cast and you some songs I'm just playing chords, other songs I'm playing arpeggios, other songs I'm playing lead breaks, <laughs> if that's what they're still called, <laughs> um, lead lines. And it's great because same for the live show. You, some songs I'm just on the 12th acoustic, other songs I'm blazing away in the Strat, other songs I'm on the Evo. Um, yeah, it's, uh, as I keep saying, it's a guitar player's dream to join the church. Yeah, I bet. And another guitar player's dream must be playing Steve Connolly's parts for Paul Kelly, which you've done oh. for almost 20 years now. Yeah. Like, that's that's incredible. Incredible. What a great great comment you just made. Like That said, Dan Kelly had played so many shows with Paul before I joined Paul's band. And Dan knows those parts like he was born with them because... He was. Well, Dan, Dan grew up sort of in the midst of um, the messengers and that period of the PK story. So Dan Dan sort of has those bits in his those parts of his DNA. And the time that Dan wasn't in Paul's band, I, I I took on Steve's parts and and I'm really lucky I get to play a lot of them to this day. And and they're like Hank Marvin solos. Like they're they're kind of singable solos. You can't you can't uh, colour outside the lines, you know? Yeah, and not a note out of place. Yeah, they're amazing. Like every time it comes on the radio like before too long, it's like it's like the shadows or something like these the guitar lines are just so epic yeah no i totally agree so how did you get involved in paul's band that was a, another act of serendipity and largely due to the great peter luscombe who plays drums with paul yeah and has done for 30 years uh, i met pete in the late 90s i sat in with his band the casuals at prince of wales a couple of nights and he'd get younger well, I was young then. I was in my 20s. <laughs> uh, he'd get young artists to come and sit in with this band, The Casuals. They'd do a Tuesday night residency at The Prince. Uh, myself and Ross McLennan from Snout um, sat in with them a couple of times and I got to know Pete that way. And Pete and I hit it off straight away for our love of Collingwood Football Club and spotty shirts <laughs> and 70s rock. So we're yeah. kind of brothers from other mothers. And um, so Pete ushered me sort of, you know, he... he, he um, put his arm over my shoulder metaphorically and took me into that world which I was a bit of a stranger to, like the grown-up musician's world, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then I sort of started playing with Stephen Cummings through Pete and the Countdown Spectacular in 2006, and that paved the way for me to join joining Paul's band because Dan Luscombe joined the Drones around that time. Yeah, so you stepped into his place, didn't you? Yeah, theoretically. What happened was Dan... Luscombe and Dan Kelly kind of um, took a sabbatical from Paul's band at the same time, so that, that left a vacancy for a guitarist. So the first tour I did with Paul was a four-piece. It was Bill McDonald, Peter Luscombe, Paul, and myself. We were like a, a four-piece rock outfit. It was pretty pretty exciting, actually. So I was sort of taking on probably lion's share of the guitar load, but um, it was a beautiful uh, experience and still is. Like, it's a, an absolute thrill every time you get on stage with Paul and the band. It's... it's uh, it's incredible. And obviously it's an amazing opportunity, but did you second guess what it would do to even at that point? Because you had quite a kind of role on. Had no 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 concept and no no sort of it's kind of like separate separate worlds. Like some people only know me through even, some people only know me through Paul Kelly, some people only know me through operas, some people only know me as a guitarist in the church. And some people only know me from a couple of solo records. I don't even like the term solo records because they're not solo records. They're just records. Yeah, under your name. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah I, 
I don't know. There's, there's no strategy. There's nothing strategic about what I do other than trying to um, put an ad in on time for a gig or something. That's the only strategy I employ, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, or changing strings in time for the show or making sure I know who's mixing the gig. Or, But in terms of career stuff, is uh, I try to keep my head down, but at the same time, you, in this day and age, you've got to promote yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. With Even, so you released a double record, which is great, by the way. Thank you. Were you worried about doing that in an age where physical media doesn't really exist? Or was it just more, fuck this, we're doing this? Yeah, exactly, the latter. Absolute latter, because... You need one in your your discography. Every good band has one. You do, you do. And and my mate, Pete, God bless him, we've been mates for over 25 years, and he'd always say to me, Ash, you've got to do a double album, mate. (laughs) And I kind of always thought um, I can't sustain... I couldn't sustain a double album, but when the time came, it, it made itself because it was during 2020 when the bulk of it was constructed. Yeah. Mostly in my lounge room, to be honest. Like seven of the songs, seven of the tracks were, were built, for want of a better word, in my uh, on Pro Tools in my lounge room. Right, yeah. I had a whole bunch of sessions that Matt Cotter had played drums to from other even recording sessions. And I assembled drum tracks uh, from Matt's outtakes alternate versions of songs, of pre- pre-existing songs. And also some of those tracks with Matt's Blessing I used on Soundtracks Volume 1. Oh, great. So there's a crossover there. Yeah, there's a song called Free the Air on Volume 1 and Festival Jam. That's just Matt jamming at the end of a take and because he's such an amazing drummer. Like, it's pretty much a whole pass. Like, Festival Jam is just one one Matt Cotter drum take and I'm just adding my guitar and bass to it pretty much. Incredible. Has the way you write songs changed since you've started using Pro Tools? Like, do you find yourself building them, like kind of layering and stuff, as opposed to, I, I imagine the old day you'd write on a guitar and just it would just be a song that you play? Yeah, look, a bit of both though, but I don't I don't use Pro Tools to its full effect. Like, I, I almost treat it like a tape machine. I don't do playlists on Pro Tools. I don't have alternate tracks. Like, what I try and do if I'm multi-tracking to Pro Tools, I commit to that take and I edit it or whatever. So there's no, when it comes time to mixing, there's only one version of that guitar. There's only one bass. There's only one vocal. Like, yeah, like a full It's track. not like, yeah, not like you're going through playlists to try and assemble. You know, I did a lot of editing and I, I got really good at editing during 2020 and I kind of got a bit of a kick out of it because you, you recall there was not much else to do apart from bunker down and do something you love, whether it be reading books or listening to records or making double albums. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. I want to take you back to the early days of Even. So you had the first EP, which got played on Triple J a bit, like 24-hour cynic and stuff like yep. that. Was there buzz around you guys early on or was it a slow build? Because you have a very different sound to what was going on in the mid-90s. Well, it's funny looking back on it. We were we were a lot of, I guess we were a post-Nirvana band in a lot of ways, but we're also a post-UMI band. Like, I kind of say, now I say this as I get older, you can't overstate how freaking important UMI were to the scene. Like, I saw them in 93 for the first time. I'd been overseas for seven months and I came back and I saw them on a Sunday night at the Tote supporting the Hummingbirds. Sunday night, probably the last show of a run they did in Melbourne. And it was like seeing the Who at Isle of Wight. It was amazing. And coming out of that shoegazy kind of 90s scene, which I really loved, by the way, like Ride and uh, Swerve Drive and all those bands, Really like that stuff, but then seeing you, I might say, Oh, okay, Timmy and the band making it okay to love rock and roll again, you know, doing windmills and wearing flares and you know, wearing orange flares and playing 335s. It was fucking awesome. Like, I think about 
and part of the reason I'm revisiting it is my son is now discovering that music. He's 20. He went to see UMI the other night. Excellent. And he, he just wanted he wanted to experience it. He hadn't seen them before. And uh, anyway, I'm getting off the track now. Um, we yeah, were good. We were in we were in their wake. Like you and my like the speedboat. They were the speedboat, and myself and 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 the Even guys and a lot of those bands were, were in their wake. We had five indie labels trying to sign us, which was awesome. And I couldn't believe it because I'd, I'd spent five years in a band where it was hard to get a gig, let alone get people to come to your gig and be interested in you. Yeah. And, and while he was, and still is in the meanie, so he was right in the thick of it and to his credit, completely gung-ho and connected within the scene and, and, and a booking agent as well. So this new band we had, had no trouble getting gigs because while we put us on, on, a, on a show with um, Smudge or we did shows before we even had, had a name. Wow. There was a buzz about the band. I guess we were one of many bands who had a buzz about them, but we got... We got lucky because Triple J played our records. They played, I'm going to say they played us for five years, from 95 to 2000 or 2001. They played pretty much everything that Rubber Records sent to them. Yeah, because they played the songs off for different hires, or, didn't they? Yes, they did. That, that was probably the last probably the last record of ours uh, that got high rotation. But it's one of those things you kind of, um, every time that they'd pitch a record to Triple J, you'd cross your fingers that they'd play it and then they'd play it and it was like, oh, my God, they're, they're still playing us. It was it was incredible, like an incredible time of my life. And I hope I can speak for Matt and Molly. It was just amazing, like playing gigs. We pretty much gigged solidly for probably from 90, 94 to 2004, to be honest. Yeah, it's a long time to be like just slugging away, gigging. And there's yeah. a lot of momentum around you guys as well. Like with each album, it seemed like you would get more and more kind of Triple J interest, at least from the outside. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we're a little bit of a anomaly, like because we were kind of self-sufficient band. Any t- any attempts that we had to have management or agency was didn't really work for for a multitude of reasons. But um, we never crossed over into um, commercial radio, which is kind of that's where it separates the wheat from the chaff. You know, like if a band can cross over into commercial land, it opens up their touring prospects so much. And, and I'm I don't mean to I, I don't say that. Um, from a standpoint of um, regret, it's just circumstance. That's just the way it was, you know. Yeah, it's how it works. But I'm proud of the. I'm proud of what I even did. We did, you know, we've done eight albums, and I'm proud of each one of them. They're, I think they stand up next to each other. And the double, it was circumstances dictated how it was made. But I'm so wrapped the way it came out, and I think the double gives people a time to sort of investigate the band, like 17 tracks. And I don't think I've still processed the double album. It went top 20 as well, which is so amazing. Yeah, it's crazy because we hadn't had a, a chart entry since a different high, and that was like 2001. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, you don't think, you don't expect these things. And when it happens, it's like, oh, my God, you know, you don't you don't think about it. You don't, it's intangible because it's just a concept. Yeah, you're not making a double album that's kind of like a psychedelic album and going, this is for the charts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, I'm really proud of that record and I stand Great. by it. And I think... um. Yeah, the band's having a bit of a, a breather at the moment, and I think you know we've we've played solidly for twenty eight years, and I think we kind of owe it to ourselves just to sort of take a breath and I think look at it from the outside, look at it from the outside looking in a bit, you know, like yeah, I need time just to sort of look at what what we did and look back at it and say I'm proud of what we've done, you know, and um, like I keep saying, there's one thing that the band never did was a live record, and, I, and we've got a lot of things on a lot of shows recorded and. 
hopefully one day um, we can sit down and go through it and see if there's anything that's really good and put it out as a live record because we haven't done a live record. Do you listen back to your old stuff much? I only hear it by accident, really. And it sort of surprises me when I hear it like over a PA or I was at a gig, a Rockwiz gig in Tassie, and they mixed a Timmy Milliken put an Even song on. And it's like, what the hell is this? Oh, that's us. <laughs> like, um, you know, the, the, the joy is making the music. It's not necessarily listening to it back. I mean, when, when you're making an album, you listen to it, as you probably know, you listen to it quite intently. Yeah. Forensically. And then you let it go and then you, you go on to the next thing, which is, you know, for me, it's guitar music and, you know, church records. We're doing another church record next year. And right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you just put out that kind of, I suppose is it a, like a bonus record for the church? The one that was released on the tour. Yeah, it's um is that just from the same sessions? Yeah, six of the tracks were from the hypnagogue session, but the other seven were recorded in a break on the last Australian tour up in um where were we up near Byron Bay? And Stephen is going through this incredible purple patch, like lyrically and melodically. He's just he's a, a bit like Paul, like they're just these lyri- great lyricists and great singers. They can just words are there almost like their religion, you know? Like Yeah, yeah. The way those guys can put words together, it's it's kind of like it's almost like magic, <laughs> you know. Songwriting wise, have you picked up any tips from those two? Because I imagine they're good masters to kind of just study. Yeah, one of the things that I've picked up by osmosis is just learning on the job, like watching how they prepare. And um, Paul is an amazing uh, person to be in the studio with because he's so prepared, and he's. He commits his vocals to the live take. I've been making records with Paul and the band since 2014, and I can vouch for nearly every track we've recorded in that time, Paul's vocal went down with the band. Right, yeah. You know, he might fix a word here and there or take it from another take, but essentially watching Paul put down a live vocal while we're playing live, is it's, it's a, an amazing thing. Um, on the other side of that coin is watching Steve put his vocals down in a church session. I haven't been privy to many of his vocal sessions, but watching him put him down, he gets a he gets a run on, and then uh, we're recording at Damien Gerard studio in Gosford and Andrew Beck, who was engineering those sessions. Steve and Andrew have a really really good working relationship right now. They and Andrew can harness Steve if he's on a roll, right, and yeah. put him in the right direction if he's not on a roll. But uh, the results have been fantastic. And it's it's helped me with my own vocals. I'm doing some vocals on some tracks in my home studio. Well, it's not really at home; it's off campus. But I think it's just all about committing, committing, like committing to a vocal take. And I haven't done many vocals lately, to be honest, because I've been sort of get my head in this guitar thing. Doing instrumental records, yeah. Yeah, but so to answer your question, I, I've learned a lot, and and that goes for everyone in those bands. Like every band I've been in and am in, I, I learn something every time. But one of the major things I learned from Paul was letting your fellow musicians be themselves within the within the context of a song right did you play on life is fine yes i did yeah yeah because that was a number one record yeah. as well which must have been a yeah yeah that was, that was pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah yeah we went we did an american tour that year which was epic um that was yeah that's a really exciting record like it's got some great moments on it yeah it's brilliant yeah and and then um nature was one after that i'm pretty sure yeah, yeah, and that was like number two yeah. or something as well. Like that was also really charted well. Yeah, um, Paul is just, um, he's a talented guy. 
in conjunction with that, he actually works hard. He works. He does the work. Yeah, that's that's evident. That's what you've got to do. Like, I'm trying to do that with my guitar. I sat down today and practiced for about an hour. I'm practicing a piece of music that I recorded for this record, which I've never played live before. The only time I played it was to record it. And I'm thinking, how do, how do I play this thing? So I had to re reteach myself this song. Well, not a song, tune, actually. Um, so it feels good to do the work, you know? It's, it's okay. <laughs> It's good. So do you find yourself after all this time still kind of learning new guitar tricks and kind of picking up stuff or are you kind yeah. of set in the way you play? No, no, man. I'm trying to learn something new every time. I'm learning I'm learning Jessica by the Allman Brothers at the moment and <laughs> Great. That, that's insane. Like it's melodic country rock and it's not usually in my wheelhouse. I can play a few things in that ballpark, but just the stuff Dickie Betts played, it's just it's just like dripping with melody, and but he's also he's also a kick-ass guitarist. So it's kind of like got this rock energy, but with this beautiful country country tinged kind of uh, flavor to it. And I'm trying to learn licks out of his repertoire and and trying to make them feel natural. And that's that's hard, you know. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, with your songwriting, are you the type of person that will kind of work on twelve songs and like kind of work on each song until they're finished, or do you have like 40 60 things that are out there and you choose <laughs> like how how do you go about that that's a, that's a really good question um at the moment i'm in the 40 i've got the 40 60 <laughs> songs lying around category because i just i haven't had um much time to sit down and get on a roll with finishing things off yeah it's like a house of matchsticks like um in all honesty reverse light years was a bit of a house of matchsticks it kind of builds itself over time yeah but everything builds itself over time. even this instrumental record like it it built itself over time. One of the tracks called Ashram Trance was done in 2020. Yeah, same time as um, Reverse Light Years guitar tracks. Um, Siesta Motel is from that time as well. Yeah, so I don't have a, a, a rule with songwriting. I, I don't force it because, you know, I kind of lo- like to let it flow. But And that's another joy of doing instrumental stuff is there's no um, kind of pressure to turn it into a song or no expectation to turn it into a song. It just becomes a piece of music. And... You know, I, a lot of my favourite pieces of music, or in rock music, are, are the instrumental breaks in songs. You know, like "Rain Song" by Zeppelin or something. Like, not not to discredit Robert Plant because he's he's a one of a kind, but um, I find myself listening to a lot of rock and roll records and just gravitating to the instrumentation or the guitar break, or you know, like the guitar solo in "More Than a Feeling" by Boston or something by Tom Schultz. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are there many even songs lying around that haven't? been released like recordings wise do you have like an odds and sods thing waiting <laughs> to be released that's a that's a great question we we actually do um and wally god bless him took the title for that odds and sods album for the covers album that we put out in 2021 um down the shops because i'm so slow sometimes to get things done i have got this dat tape that's how old it is yeah amazing i've got a dat cassette of all these old even songs and they're pretty rough but that's another thing I guess we could probably do down the track is is put that stuff out in some capacity. Um, a few things lying around, but yeah, um, not not a lot. But like I said, a lot of live gigs on 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 dats and on CD drives and on multi track files. Yeah. So one day, I'll have to think about that some more. Yeah, great. Hope you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of songs in your catalog, are there ones that you feel like should have gotten a bigger hearing where you go oh come on that's a classic why didn't anyone why why is that not yeah <laughs> that's a great question too God, you ask all the good questions um well yeah it's a, it's a great question and I, I 
I could answer it two ways. I could answer it in a humble way. Yeah, don't do that. But I could answer it in a very conceited way. So Yeah, do the conceited way. If I can strike a balance, I think some of the songs off Reverse Light Use are some of the best songs I even ever recorded. And I think Goat Island is one of them. Yeah. Um Return to Stardust off Saturn Returns is is I think it's it's a very, very strong piece of music. Um Oh gee, I don't know, man. I it's I don't think about it a lot. That's why you put me on the spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I kind of think if something's good, it'll reach people eventually. Like I only found out in the last six months that Randy Backman from Backman Turner Overdrive put out a solo album called Axe. Oh, really? Axe. Which is a solo guitar instrumental record. Oh, wow. All right. There you go. So I did a bit of a deep dive on Randy Backman and he was in a band called The Guess Who, you know, the yeah, American yeah, yeah. woman. Yeah. And I think, well, it took me 50 years to find Randy Backman's solo album. It might take someone 50 years to find Reverse Light Years, but that's fine by me. Yeah, it's still out there. You know, if it stands up, you know, which I think it, I think it does because every even record, none of none of the even records have been, well, probably with the exception of the first few, <laughs> none of them have been dictated to by what was going on at the time. Yeah, no, they're all sit outside of kind of fashion. Yeah, and and even more so as the as the band progressed through through to the last two albums, Set and Returns and Reverse Light Years, we. We couldn't be more off the off the off the radar, you know. But that's good because you don't. There's no one breathing down your neck. There's no expectation. But that brings me to what I'm doing now, and it's like I'm going even more off grid, I suppose. Like it's it's a niche. It's completely niche uh, audience for what I'm doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I won't be collecting any arias for this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think it's going to go top twenty? How far ahead do you have to plan being part of all these bands? Like, do you have to, like, because you mentioned, like, things are recorded two years ahead, like the Ronson hang-up record. Is that due to scheduling or is it just because things take time? Things take time. Um, and things like the Ronson record and my solo record, sorry, <laughs> my instrumental records, yeah. um, <laughs> they they take, they make themselves over time. I guess when I, I, I can see both sides of this, I'm in two very well-oiled rock and roll machines, the Paul Kelly band and the church band. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, surely they schedule well ahead. Yeah, they and so the good thing about that is you usually know three to six months, sometimes nine to 12 months ahead what's coming up, and then you can fit things in around that. So uh, that's one advantage of the music industry is, as you as you can appreciate, is um you need to know three to six months ahead what things are looking like so you don't double book yourself. Both of the bands I mentioned, Paul, the Paul Band and Church have been incredibly flexible and understanding of, of my varying commitments, and I feel like um, I don't want to uh, abuse that sort of good faith. So I try and do what I can to make sure that I don't um, have clashes. You know, it, they're kind of inevitable, but just see how how that pans out. Finally, in terms of songwriting, guitar playing, etc. When did you first start? Like, what was your first kind of spark that hit you in terms of, like, did you start by being into guitar or did you start by being into music and then you kind of got onto guitar? How did you become involved in this world? Oh, that's a great, and you asked the best questions, <laughs> seriously. Um, well, I guess the, the first thing was having a record in 1975 called Explosive Hits, and I haven't, I hadn't been playing guitar, I hadn't picked up guitar probably tells about in the late 70s so this is 
Explosive hit 75, had ACDC, Sherbet, Linda Ronstadt, Al Stewart, um, John Paul Young, John English, I think. Had some great, great rock and pop hits of the day. And that kind of, that was our first record at home. And then we got Kiss Records. And um, actually got a nice frilly t shirt on today, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, so getting in through Kiss, and then that was sort of sparked my interest in the guitar. And it was always guitar. Yeah, always guitar first, and then I joined a band in, when I was fifteen, and I was the guitarist, and I was really, really inspired by Johnny Marr from the Smiths and Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen. Is that kind of how you got into sixties stuff? Back through those kind of eighties jangly bands sound. Like yeah, that? in a way, another great period was um, just I don't know, man. I always loved the Beatles. Like I got into them when I was about fifteen, and I started buying their records probably in the mid eighties. And then from the Beatles, I got into the Kinks and the Who and Yardbirds, and but I was into Zeppelin like since I was about eleven or twelve. So yeah, they were like they were like a portal back to a lot of other bands like um, the Kinks and the Yardbirds, and yeah, I I just had an awakening in the mid eighties. And the first band I was in the Swarm, we we were that's with Matt actually, Matt Cotter from Even was in the Swarm. We we used to um, yeah play Easy Beat songs and Who Guru songs, and we were right into that sixties thing. But songwriting-wise, I think I was more into tune writing because Francis, who was the singer in The Swarm, was the lyricist. So I kind of, I sort of modelled myself on Johnny Marr and trying to come up with nice guitar lines and then Frank would finish them off and they'd become songs. And then it kind of morphed into wanting to be like a Jay Mascus type, type of character in the early 90s. And I wanted to sort of be the singer and the guitarist. And um, that, that has been fun. And now at the moment, I, I'm just... Like in Paul's band in the church, I'm just the guitarist. I do a bit of BVs, but even in the grapes are probably the only bands I've ever sung in. So um, it's, I, I feel sometimes I can get my point across better <laughs> through the guitar. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. But, I'm, you know, look, I'm not discounting all the pop songs I've written, but it's not, I don't know, I'm not on a quest to write the perfect pop song. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I feel like I've done eight, eight albums. Yeah, done eight albums worth of pop songs. and Yeah, it's a lot. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's more down the track, but I, I, I don't know. I sort of, uh, I don't, I don't really know. I'm just going with the flow. <laughs> so even it's like on a hiatus at the moment, kind of. Is it? Yeah, I don't even know what the right word is. You know, I think we just. Um, well, I, I needed to have a bit of a um, take a breath, really, because we have been playing semi regularly for 29 years. You know, um, and yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, we, we haven't really had a chance to sit down and talk about that. And it's not for me to talk on Matt and Wally's behalf. Yeah, you know, that's fair I, enough. Yeah. I can't speak for them. So uh, from my own perspective, I think um, it, it's okay to say, look, let's just, you know, park the car in the garage for a while, you know. Yeah. Before it, before it gets too much rust on it, you know. <laughs> How's that for an analogy? And that was Ashley Naylor. He has a new record, Soundtracks Volume 2, out now, which you can get from ashleynaylor.bandcamp.com. And you can also get the Ronson Hangups new record, Centaurus. That's at ronsonhangup.bandcamp.com. And my guest next week is Chris Ballou, singer from the President of the United States of America. Until then... (laughs) 